is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land, and this is the Full Story Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. The first year of the Albanese government has been marked by division and rancour. Misinformation, racist abuse and ugly campaigning on the voice referendum have all left the nation bitter and exhausted. And more Australians are struggling with the cost of living crisis, adding growing pressure on the government to provide urgent relief. So how has Australian politics changed this year? And what fresh challenges lay ahead? Today, I'm speaking with Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of Newsroom Mike Tisha about the political stories that shaped 2023. It's Friday, the 15th of December. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Jane. Good morning, Mike. Hi, Jane. And welcome to the last show of the year. How are you all feeling? Ready. Ready? Ready for the end? Ready for the la- ready for the end of the year. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay, this time last year, Lenore, you were looking back on the year in politics, the move to a Labor government, the emergence of the Teals, and a shift to a different kind of politics or campaigning, which you said could well be permanent, depending on how Labor performs. So one year on, what's your thinking? Yeah, I've always been a bit of an optimist, and possibly that was too optimistic, an observation Yes, Anthony Albanese has been experimenting with dialing down the outrage and at first it did seem to be working but it feels like we're ending 2023 in a kind of rancorous, divisive mood. I think in terms of politics you need to judge the substance of what the government has done and then the perceptions of what the government has done. And, of course, those perceptions can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If every commentator on the block says they're hopeless, they've lost their way, people are going to start thinking they're hopeless and they've lost their way. But I do think a combination of some missteps by the government and this increasingly emboldened opposition led by Peter Dutton to weaponise everything and turn everything into a sort of divisive debate means that that strategy that Anthony Albanese started out governing with is being tested. You can see that in the polls. You can see that in the sort of precipitous drop in trust in institutions that we saw in the last Guardian Essential poll. And there are a lot of external factors feeding into that mood, cost of living being the the biggest one. I mean, Cosy Lives isn't just the word of the year. It is what everybody is feeling in their daily lives. So all that is true. 
And I don't discount the difficulty to govern in an orderly transactional way when your opposition leader is sort of trying to turn everything into a sort of rancorous soundbite. That's absolutely true. But I do think it means that we're going into this Christmas break with the government having to really think about how they maintain that strategy and also communicate it to the Australian people. And I know that first answer has all been about perceptions and I know we'll come back to the substance of it, but I feel like the perception of how the government's going is at a bit of a a tipping point. I wouldn't go so far as to say they've lost their way and all the sort of hyperbolic um, commentary that's around, but I think they're going to need to recalibrate. Mm. I think as far as the tenor of the conversation goes, it felt like over the year that the voice debate was the huge turning point. I I mean, it went on for, you know, most of the year. And it was truly awful. But the longer it went on, the worse it got. And the result obviously put the government on the back foot generally, as well as being a, you know, intrinsically bad thing for them in itself. Uh, it kind of affected the mood much more generally and obviously emboldened Coalition and Peter Dutton in and particular. And dominated to, the headlines. Like yeah. that was all anyone was talking about. Yeah. yeah. And once that happened, then, you know, that became the strategy. If it wasn't the strategy already, but it be, sort of encouraged the Coalition to double down on that strategy and, and pursue it in relation to other issues as well, particularly at the moment as we're seeing in relation to the Middle East. Mm. I mean, the referendum also opened up kind of a new type of conversation about how we as Australians think about our colonial history, where does that leave us at the end of the year as a nation, do you think? I think in an uncertain position because I think if you look at the polls, people didn't actually vote no because they didn't want to recognise Indigenous history or they didn't want Indigenous people to have a voice. They voted no for a whole lot of reasons and in part because of the sort of misinformation that was spread during that campaign. But the proponents of a no vote, emboldened and, you know, and victorious, uh, have asserted really that the vote was almost a vote for assimilation. And some of them are now talking about questioning whether we should have welcome to country, questioning whether we should fly the Indigenous flag, questioning whether we need separate Indigenous programs. I think the proponents of a yes vote have taken their time to think about it and let things settle. And I think that was probably smart in the circumstances. But I do think that debate needs to be resumed in the new year. And it needs to be made really clear that there's no evidence that I can see that Australians were actually voting for what the most vocal proponents of no are now claiming that they were voting for. I think there needs to be a line in the sand at some point. But I think that's something to be resumed in the new year. Mm. But one of the strands in the debate, if it's if you can, if you that's can call a kind it a debate, word there, Mike. that's a kind <laughs> word. Um, was that the government should have been focusing more on issues that affect people most directly, particularly the cost of living, and that did seem to have some resonance. And I think politically, where that leaves them is that next year. That is where their intention is going to be yeah. devoted almost entirely. Yeah. And it's not that it's not a not a real thing. It obviously is. As we come up to the budget, the conversation is all going to be about mm-hmm. tax cuts, the stationary tax cuts and what they're going to do in other respects to ameliorate the cost of living pressures on people. What have been the achievements of the Albanese government this year? What has actually been 
done this year? Actually, quite a lot when you look at it in a list. I mean, the thing is, and every government since ever will tell you that you don't get a lot of credit for the stuff you've already just done and people just say, yeah, what's the next thing? But if you look back at what they've done, it is actually quite a lot. They've tripled incentives for people to get bulk billings of older people and children. They've made medicines and scripts cheaper. They have got the first part of their IR laws through, so contractors are going to get paid the same as full-time employees. They've announced a new migration policy. They've increased paid parental leave. They've increased by quite a significant amount what aged care workers get paid, which is hopefully going to sort of address the crisis in aged care centres. They've established a National Anti-Corruption Commission. They've you know, got the starting point, the foundations of NDIS reform through. I mean, there's quite a long list of really important policies that have been shifted over the past year. But it's a complicated list to talk about and doesn't really make the headlines. But, you know, you you do have to give some credit. They have done quite a lot of stuff. And there are other first signs that real wages are increasing, which is turning around after a long period where they were in decline. So that is, from the government's point of view, a positive green shoot at least, although it doesn't mean all that much to a lot of people still under financial stress. What about Labor's climate record? What has been achieved and perhaps not achieved there this year? Well, they've got a climate policy that's a very, very good start. They got the changes to the safeguard mechanism through, so it actually does something also good. Maybe it doesn't do enough, but it does something. And they then acknowledged that they might not meet their targets the way they were going and set up this massive underwriting scheme to try and pull more investment into green technology. Also a really good thing. So a whole bunch of good things happening. They're still approving new coal and gas mines. I would recommend the analysis that our environment editor, Adam Morton, wrote from COP on that subject. Yeah, so a really interesting way to look at it. I think the way Adam phrased it was there are completely two sides to Australia's. The way Australia presented itself at the COP, I hate using that acronym, but I think everyone knows what it means. Go and say good COP, uh, bad COP. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> at least they've got, a, they've got a decent story to tell on those policies that I know just went through. But on the other hand, we're also still the third biggest fossil fuel exporter. And there are not many signs that they're going to change their mind on whether that is how we should remain. So it's very much on the one hand, but on the other hand with that, and they don't want to talk about the export side of it. It sort of seems to be a bit of a feature of of this government that on the one hand, Labor is aiming for a slow and steady march to progress on a number of different fronts, but is also facing increasing pressure to deliver immediately. For any government at any time, there are obviously there are always urgent pressing issues that they demand to be dealt with, whether they're events that happen on the world stage or just the regular run of the economy and all the other things that the EU government has to deal with the whole time. So it's difficult to keep that steady as she goes demeanour in a government. They've tried really hard to sort of have that, you know, we're going to be quiet and confident and reasoned and moderate and just move ahead with what we've planned and not be distracted by by the opposition or the media or any other alarms. But that has its limits, I think, and they have been not as responsive to fast-moving events as they might have been. It feels like they're going to have to shift a gear a bit by this time next year will be um, definitely well and truly into sort of election campaigning. We 
which they, I mean, they're giving every indication they will, yeah. right? Like the budget will be effectively a pre-election budget and within all the constraints that listeners will have heard us talk about gazillions of times, they will try and do something about cost of living because 13 interest rates, you know, are biting. But I guess, as Mike said before, the economic squeeze is probably going to be slightly easing. You know, inflation is slightly coming down, wages are rising slightly you know, not enough for people to be out of the world of pain, but I don't think it's going to be getting exponentially worse. So, you know, that might work a bit in their favour if they then do things in the budget that are aimed at, you know, the kitchen table, as they like to call it. Mm. It's crazy to think we're already talking about a pre-election budget at this mm-hmm. point. It yeah, feels like get, it hasn't been very you long. You get almost no time it's in a an election, election cycle. <laughs> One of Labor's success stories of this year has been the way it's attempted to reset a number of relationships on the world stage. Can you talk us through that? So I suppose the main one is in relation to China. They have reopened at least dialogue with the Chinese leadership. That's led to some easing of the trade restrictions that were imposed during the pandemic. That feels like a positive thing. Still a very fragile relationship, I think. You you sense it could unwind at any moment over Taiwan or for domestic reasons, China feels like that's not in its interest. But for the moment, that's a positive, I think. Uh, And there was also the AUKUS Pact this year, which was unveiled in March and means that Australia is going to acquire up to eight nuclear-powered submarines for an eye-watering number of billions of dollars, which I think we discussed on this podcast at the time was an announcement made with very little scrutiny and very little sort of uh, discussion about how a decades-long commitment like that will weather what may or may not happen in the US polity. However, that was a pretty significant international development this year. The US election next year is something that's looming over a lot of these... Everything. Everything and Mm. causing me personally a lot of anxiety already (laughs) because it could change everything in the US, it could change everything in Ukraine, for example, and it could change a lot of things for Australia too if the Republicans win. It feels like a lot of our international relations are hostage to that extremely important election. It's been a bit over a year, a year and a half or so, since Dutton rose to the coalition leadership. What impact has his leadership had on the country this year? I think that the decision he took on the referendum and the way that he prosecuted that debate and then, in his view, the successful way he prosecuted that debate, or he and his team, has emboldened him into that strategy, which is effectively to weaponise or or play every issue as hard as you can politically. And this idea that there's no need really to try to ameliorate your rhetoric or your policies to win back the teal seats, that they're really obviously going for the outer suburban and regional seats, I think that will lead us down a path of a lot more culture war kind of policies and a doubling down of the political style that we've seen. You know, I think he put his toe in the water and it worked and that's clearly the way he's going. He's getting a lot of supportive commentary in the News Corp papers. He's talking about a one-term strategy. You know, I think he's feeling emboldened and emboldened to continue in the style of politics, which 
in my personal view, can be quite corrosive for the polity. You could see in the way the coalition responded to the High Court decision on indefinite detention. Now, clearly the government hadn't prepared for that enough. You know, I'm not saying the government handled it perfectly. But I think the opposition's response did not show a lot of respect for the institution of the court. And I, I'm concerned about how that style of politics will impact on people's trust in institutions and on the general political debate. And we saw that also in the in the referendum campaign where Dutton made that one remark, but I think a really telling one about the Electoral Commission being rigged. The, yeah. the way that the, 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 I mean, it was um, almost Trumpian. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's where it crosses over into from a legitimate attack on opposition policies to what I would argue is an illegitimate attack on institutions. And that I kind agree. of went to the High Court mm. decision as well. Well, we've spoken about Albanese, we've spoken about Dutton. Apart from the major party leaders, who were the politicians that left a mark for both of you this year? Um, I would like to call out Julian Lisa, who stood aside as the Coalition's Indigenous Affairs spokesperson over the stance on The Voice. I would like to quote the great Albus Dumbledore to um, explain why I um, admire Julian Lisa. Dumbledore said, it takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to our enemies, but just as much to stand up to our friends. And that's what Julian Lisa did. And I do quite admire him for it. I think out of the campaign in a completely different way, you could pick Jacinta Price, who came to the fore as the most effective spokesperson, I think, on the no side of the referendum. And I think she made a name for herself as a, you know, you might not agree with a lot of things that she says, and I don't, but, but, she's a um, damn good but communicator. she was an extremely effective campaigner mm. and communicator. And I do think we'll see a lot more of her uh, in coming mm. years. I also think the Greens have had a good year in politics in that they have agreed with the Labor Party on, on many issues and helped get things through, but they've differentiated themselves on other issues, in particular rental policy. You know, and I know the government got very angry about that and saw the Greens as a stalling force, but I think in the electorate, the Greens have probably uh, become more visible for non-environmental issues over this year. Mm. And one thing that we talked about last year was how the parliament might work in a completely different way from previous governments. And I think that has been borne out to mm. quite a large extent yeah. that there's been kind of relatively constructive conversations, not just yeah. with the Greens, but and also... And the Teals with the, have worked really constructively. With, with the Teals yeah. and with David Pocock and with uh, Jackie Lambie, two senators um, to get things, bills improved mostly and passed. So it does feel like the way the electoral arithmetic worked out, which we uh, talked about last year and after immediately after the election in a fairly hopeful way, that, that does, does seem to have been borne out this mm. year. Mm. And contrary to uh, some of the commentary at the time, having, you know, other people on the crossbench is not a recipe for disaster or stasis, but rather, you know, constructive politics. Mm, absolutely. And I'd also like to call out Pat Dodson. I've known Pat Dodson for many, many years. I think Going with Pat and some journalists up to his country up in the Kimberley was one of the sort of formative experiences of my early journalistic career. He's retired from politics now and I think he made an incredible contribution. Mm. Well, we've talked a lot on this show about how we can remain hopeful in a world where it's becoming harder and harder to do that. Looking ahead to next year when we do this all over again, do either of you have any hope for what's to come? We always have to have hope <laughs> for what's to come, Jane, always. And, yeah, it's been a very scrappy 
year, very rancorous year. Uh, it feels sometimes like the forces of intolerance and polarisation are just insurmountable and that everything is seen through some sort of angry binary prism, that nuance is impossible. But it's our job to not give up on intelligent debate and nuance, not ever, not ever. That's our whole job and we certainly will not be giving up on that. So I guess my great hope is that we take a breath over Christmas and come back focused on solutions and having good discussions and civilised disagreement. Next, worthwhile diversions from division. Hey all, I'm Anton Issa, newsletters editor at Guardian Australia. With so much news happening and a lot of misinformation, we're making sure you get the most accurate reporting from a source you can trust. Guardian Australia's Afternoon Update is a quick roundup of the day's top stories delivered for free straight to your inbox. Sign up at guardian.com forward slash newsletter or simply search for Guardian Australia Newsletters. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. As we've discussed, this year has been pretty full on. Just a few weeks ago, we were talking about news fatigue and how to combat that. It's been a really overwhelming year. But as always, the year in politics has given us some moments that are so bizarre, you just have to laugh. What could you both not get out of your head? Lenore, what was it for you this year? I just loved that moment when Barnaby Joyce realised he'd watched the wrong Matilda's World Cup match and he was watching a replay and he thought he'd watched the really close one where one by penalty shootout but then when everyone was talking about it he realised that him and his mates at the pub had been watching the entirely wrong <laughs> match altogether. Well I went to the pub and watched them on the weekend but I think and you'll see it on the Facebook post I think we're watching the wrong game I think they'd put on a repeat because it was on channel 10 uh, only it was the right one but <laughs> when we finished the game Australia had one one nil in full time. It's a slow so dawning of Realization on his face yeah. on television. Yeah, exactly. So good. Just to let you know, the Matildas won. I know. It was an incredible <laughs> penalty, penalty shootout, which we never We went and had dinner because we thought they'd won 1 0. It feels like Barnaby Joyce has been a bit more peripheral to politics this year than previously, but I would also mention one of his other uh, interventions. <laughs> uh, which was that he expressed doubt about the official narrative on the uh, death of John F. Kennedy, uh, saying the official findings didn't stack, quotes, didn't stack up. Uh, just, and he spent an awful lot of time researching the topic and finds the official theories implausible. So, you know. Good to know he's got time thanks, on his hands. Yeah, 
Uh, thanks for that contribution. So it's in no way a funny story. It's just one of those stories that you can't stop reading about, which is the alleged mushroom poisonings in Victoria, which was a global story. It reads like the plot of Midsummer Murders, except for, of course, the court has not yet made any finding or even heard the charges of murder that have been brought against a woman who fed Beef Wellington to a group of family, church-going family and friends, and then three of them wound up dead and one of them seriously ill because of, um, allegedly because of poison mushrooms in the Beef Wellington. I mean, yeah, yeah, you couldn't make it up. Very, very strange. Mike? Well, I went back through some of our previous ones that we'd mentioned through the year, and there were a lot of very strange stories this year. There was the ABC journalist who accidentally named her child methamphetamine rules. Well, not accidentally, but she... She did it perfectly she did on, it on purpose. She did it on purpose but did not think it would be accepted by the births, deaths and marriages, but <laughs> to her surprise it was. <laughs> uh, there was the $528 million icebreaker Australia built, which then discovered it was <laughs> too too big to get under the bridge at Hobart to refuel, so it has to go all the way around the Whoopsies. entire coast of Tasmania <laughs> to refuel in Burn. Uh, Rupert Murdoch is dating again at the age of 92. He broke off his uh, broke off his engagement. Wasn't and the then, engagement with the woman he wanted to spend the second half of second his half life with? Second half of his life with, yeah. Uh, but then now he's got a new girlfriend. She is the very young age of 66. There is the orcas who are apparently trying to deliberately sink yachts around the world, maybe following a fad, scientists say. <laughs> and which in news <laughs> conference I went, got mixed up with orcas, orcas and I couldn't work out if people were talking about orcas or orcas. <laughs> who knew that orcas had fads? <laughs> um, there was the, the guy who lives in Wangaratta who was the only Australian representative at the royal wedding, uh, Simon Abney Hastings who was the bearer of the great golden spurs at, at, <laughs> very, at the wedding. Very He's a direct descendant role. of... The brother of Edward the Fourth and Richard the Third. We should follow I'm sure up on we'll him. Be very familiar to all our listeners. Yeah, he was great. Uh, Wangaratta had never heard of him, but he's now the second most famous son, son of Wangaratta <laughs> after Nick Cave. After Nick Cave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I think one of our one of our most popular the last one, but one of our most popular stories this year was in our series called A New Start After Sixty which was the guy who used to be CEO of a company but gave it all up to drive massive trucks across the whole of, you know, across and the... And loves it. He the, totally the loves wide it. wide expanses of Australia and just completely loves his job. And so if you want to end on a positive note, there's one one person at least who Should is I loving, become a truck loving life. <laughs> it didn't sound great. I did not, that's not for me, but he, he was enjoying Whatever it. Whatever makes so. you happy. You could listen to lots of podcasts. It's true. Including this one. Including this one. Hit subscribe. <laughs> Can I just say before uh, we finish up that uh, and take a breath over Christmas that I just want to thank everybody who helps make this pod other than those of us who sort of wrap it on on it in particular. The hosts, so Jane and Gabrielle Jackson and Laura Murphy-Oates and the producers, Miles Herbert and Joe Coning and the executive producer, Miles Martignoni, because this chat is the best fun thing in my week, certainly, and I hope the listeners like it too and it couldn't happen without all those people. Yeah, and I think the listeners, if they were listening all year, may have heard Miles Herbert's laugh at least once. So <laughs> On a mini You have to make him laugh. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave in some of my laughs this week. Great. <laughs> all right, thank you so much, Lenore. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot, Jane. That was Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of Newsroom Mike Tisher. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Daniel Simo. The executive producer was Molly Glassie. 
And if you've enjoyed the Newsroom Edition this year, please subscribe to Full Story wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps us find new listeners. I'm Jane Lee. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.